Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13 through the 53rd chapter, verse 12. This passage you'll be familiar with is is often entitled the suffering servant. My Bible actually has it as the suffering and glory of the servant. This passage is more frequently quoted in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. It's often referred to as the gospel in the Old Testament. Please follow along as we read God's holy word. Verse 13 of chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the holy, inspired word of God. Join me in the prayer of confession and devotion that's printed in our bulletin. Lord Jesus, you are King of heaven and earth and King of my soul. I submit to you who owned me as creator 
and redeemed me as both ransom and redeemer. In God's judgment at the cross, you traded your righteous robes for my sinful garments. You were cast off that I might be brought in, judged an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, wounded that I might be healed, made a shame that I might inherit glory. My heart is sworn to you. I have no other Savior. I have no other Lord. I want to love no other more than I love you. Strengthen my feeble devotion. In your grace and patience, have mercy on my life and posterity. Under your reign, I rest my soul. Amen. Please stand as we sing our hymn of grace in Christ alone. is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In your respective classes. <clears throat> Lester, return to the scripture. Uh, we read this morning with Bill from Isaiah 52. We have been in a study over the last year in the book of Acts. Uh, we've taken a break uh, last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday in the latter part of the Lenten season uh, to focus uh, on uh, the cross and last week we looked at a narrative, a story uh, involving uh, Zacchaeus, a man who uh, righteous people thought he could never be saved. In fact, they didn't want anything to do with him, but Jesus did. And we looked at how uh, Jesus dynamically came to uh, Zacchaeus and invaded his life and his home. It has been probably 20 years since I have devoted an entire message to Isaiah 53. 
But this week, uh, in looking forward to this Sunday, the Holy Spirit really brought this passage uh, to uh, my heart and my mind again. And I became so excited about it that I, I can hardly wait till next year because we're going to devote about five Sundays to Isaiah 53. Uh, and I, I had a wonderful time this week uh, devoting uh, myself to study in Isaiah 52 and 53 and in writing this message. Before we look at this portion of God's Word, let's pray and ask him to teach us. Our Father, this is a precious time in our worship when we bow before you as your priests, as we bow before you as priests for each other, as priests for Fayette County. Our Father, this morning, we once more pray for Tom Morgan. Thank you for how you answered prayer this week. Thank you for how there's been no further complications. Thank you for taking him into rehab, and we pray that very soon he will be able to return home. Father, we pray that hour by hour and day by day, uh, that portion of his body, which has been so affected by these surgeries, will heal. And that, Father, there will be a permanent, complete healing. We thank you, Father, that Janet Sartell has been able to complete these treatments, these harsh treatments, uh, in such uh, a strong way. We thank you for her health, and we pray that you would prevent the cancer from returning to, to her body. We pray for Jim and Dorothy Bennington, Father, that you would bless them. We pray that you would strengthen them. Uh, Father, we pray that soon they would be able to return and worship with us. We pray that you would be a comfort, that they would know your presence in their home. We pray for young Matthew Howard, Father. Uh, we pray that you would bring healing to his head, healing to his brain. Father, cause the doctors to see and hear what needs to be seen, what needs to be heard, to do what needs to be done. Oh, Father, speak to him as only you're able to speak to him. Draw him close to you. Now, as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Father, we've just prayed for people in need, but the truth is all of us, all of us are in need. Father, we pray that where we need repentance, you would bring repentance. Where we need confession, you would bring confession. Where we need comfort, you would bring comfort. Where we need teaching, that you would bring teaching. Father, I can't do that, and these folks know that, and you know, Father, that I know that. 
It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be changed and affected from the inside out. So, Father, in these next few minutes, we pray that you will speak powerfully into our lives where we are. Give us understanding. Captivate us with this profound passage in your word. We pray in Jesus' name and we pray for his glory. Amen. What was this majestic Messiah doing on that Roman cross? Today, Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus entering Jerusalem officially as the Messiah of Israel. He entered Jerusalem as the king. He entered Jerusalem as the prophets of old said he would. He came as the king for whom Israel had longed for a thousand years. His disciples that day, They followed him in expectation into that city. They expected him to rally the people and use his miraculous power to expel the Roman army and establish his long-awaited kingdom. He had made it plain to them that he was not here to expel the Romans. Not then. He had made it plain that he had not come as a military leader in general to establish that kind of kingdom, not then. But everyone, everyone knew from the prophets of old, the Messiah had to be a mighty and conquering king. One has to ask then, was this triumphal entry into Jerusalem a flop? Did Jesus fail in his mission? Was he not a mighty king? Was he not a conquering Messiah? We have to ask that because before the week passed, here he is hailed as Messiah, claiming to be Messiah. Before that very week passed, he would be nailed to a Roman cross in Jerusalem's garbage dump. He would be shamefully executed outside the city walls. If he was a great and mighty king, what in the world? was he doing on that Roman cross? You know, Jesus had told them this would happen all through his ministry. In fact, he said that that cross was his mission. Go back in your mind to that 
point midway in his ministry when he questioned his disciples as to his identity, when he said to them, who do you say that I am? And they readily confessed that day. They said, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. That's what they said. Do you know what happened? He did something at that moment he had not done in his entire ministry with them. At that moment, he began to speak of dying a shameful death. He had never mentioned it previously. Look at Matthew 16, 21 on your scripture sheet. From that time on, from that time on, from that very moment when they confessed he was Messiah, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Now they had just said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus knew their expectations. They would expect a mighty, conquering king. A warrior king. So he began immediately to dispel their false expectations. He said, I will suffer terribly and be killed at Jerusalem. And then I'll return from the grave. He said that. And how did they respond? Did they say, wow, you're going to die and come back from the grave? (laughs) Not at all. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. What was Peter saying? The Messiah of Israel will be a great king, Jesus. He cannot be killed. What you just said, that's not the story of a conquering Messiah. That can't be your story, Jesus. You know, most every year, we will see a college football player become a star, become an all-star become a giant in college football. He'll usually lead his team to great heights. Maybe he wins the Heisman Trophy. And he's expected to be a star in the pros. He's expected, it's expected that this player will become a franchise player for some pro team. He'll be expected automatically to be the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Every fall, we give witness to this. We can see this. And yet many such players fail to accomplish those great expectations. They go to the pros and and they stumble. They fail miserably. And after a year or two, they're never heard from again. Except we remember them as, you know what? He never reached his expectations. He, He failed. The expectations 
for this great prophet, this Messiah. The expectations for, for this Jesus who miraculously made the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the paralyzed to walk, who even raised the dead, the people expected him to be the great and mighty warrior king like David. You look at Jesus on that awful, shameful cross in the, crowd, in the town garbage dump, and he certainly looks like a failure. He certainly seems to be a dying failure. And that's exactly what the disciples thought. Did you know that? That's what the disciples thought. They thought Jesus, during and right after the cross, they thought Jesus was a failed Messiah. None of them were at the tomb waiting for him to rise. They were hiding, they were in hiding, and they were making plans to return home. Remember, the resurrection morning, there were two disciples on their way home. They were on the road to Emmaus. They were overcome with sorrow. Jesus joined them in their journey. They didn't recognize him. Their hopes were smashed. It was a journey of despair. What did they say to him? Look at Luke 24, 21 on your scripture sheet. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That's past tense. We don't hope that anymore. He failed. Now, we can understand part of this. The prophets of the Old Testament did speak of the Messiah as being a great king. But do you know what? They spoke just as much about the Messiah being a savior who would die an atoning death. In fact, there are few passages in the New Testament that describe the actual detail and reasons for Calvary as profoundly and as deeply as Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. If you're not a Christian, if you do not believe that this is God's word, this is a problem that you've got to have from Isaiah 53. How do you explain this passage where an Old Testament prophet 700 years before Calvary spoke in such exacting detail about the death of Jesus. This passage is so profound and deep that this morning I can only scratch the surface. There's so much here. As I said, next year during Lent, we'll spend several Sundays on Isaiah 53. (laughs) And I can hardly wait. But this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit will whet our appetites so that between now and next Sunday, that as we read those passages in the New Testament dealing with Jesus' death and resurrection, and I hope you will read those this week, I pray that every day, you know, pick, pick, a, pick what Matthew said about 
Gethsemane, the trial in the death of Christ. Pick what Luke said about Gethsemane, the trial and the death of Christ. But every day when you do that, go back and read once more Isaiah 53. I promise you, if you'll do that this week, you'll see things that you've never seen previously. The background. What's the background to this passage? All through Isaiah, we read of the coming Messiah being a great king. Look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You know this passage. All of us do. We know it by heart. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He's speaking of the Messiah, this great Messiah King, this majestic Messiah King. But in the 42nd chapter, Isaiah begins to write with a different tone. He begins to write of a servant of the Lord. It's sheer poetry. In the first two poems about this servant, beginning in in chapter 42, it is obvious that Isaiah identifies the servant as Israel, as the people of Israel. But in the poetry about this servant, in the latter part of chapter 52, he begins to speak of this servant as a suffering servant. And he speaks of him not as a nation, not as Israel, but as a single person, an individual. Look at Isaiah 52, 13. This is where it begins. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured Beyond that of any man, it is formed marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. This servant is an individual, and the servant does not look like a conquering king. He looks like a conquered, beaten man dying in shame. We're going to see this morning, during the brief time we have remaining, we're going to see a suffering servant. We're going to see a sacrifice servant. We're going to see a satisfied servant. First, I want you to see a suffering servant. Look at Isaiah 53, 3 and 5. Now, look at this. He's speaking of the same Messiah Think about it. He's speaking of the same Messiah of which we read in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a son is given. This is the same person. What's he say? Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by by men. A man of sorrows and familiar 
with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's not the one piercing. He's not the one crushing. He is being pierced, and he's being crushed, and he's acquainted with grief, and he's a man of sorrows. Several years ago, Mel Gibson produced and directed the movie The Passion of Christ. I think that movie captured this suffering servant in a way that had never been depicted in films previously. I don't think I've seen a more graphic portrayal of the suffering of Christ. Flogged almost to the point of death. Nailed to a cross. Those scenes were so graphic. Have you seen that movie? Those scenes were so graphic and so hard that I've only watched it once all the way through. It's hard to watch. That physical torture was not the greatest aspect of his suffering. We'll get to that in a moment. But right now, look at him being flogged. He's full of sorrow, brought on by torture. He's the suffering servant. That's what Isaiah was trying to picture. Now, let me ask you a profound question. Who caused him to suffer? Who pierced him? Who crushed him? Immediately, we want to say the political and religious leaders of Jerusalem. Or we want to say the Romans in their cruelty. But look at Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. In verse 5, where he says he was crushed for our iniquities, it's the same Hebrew word, daka, that's used in the 10th verse. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It's astounding. It was God himself who pierced him. It was God himself who crushed him. Why? Why? Why would the father pierce and crush his own son? Why did he have to be this suffering servant? Why did he suffer? He was crushed of God. Why? That brings us to our second point. We see not only a suffering servant, but we see a sacrifice and substituted servant. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was not pierced and crushed by our sins. He was pierced and crushed, what? For our sins. Look at Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. He was numbered with the transgressors. In Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, on that final night, Jesus quotes this verse and applies it to himself. Look at Luke twenty-two thirty-seven on your sheet. It is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Do you see it so clearly? Jesus is speaking to Matthew and John and Philip and these disciples. And he quotes from Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. And he says, do you understand? That's talking about me. I will be numbered with the transgressions. How? He was sinless, but our sins were laid on him. He took the blame and guilt for our sin upon himself. That's what was happening at Calvary. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins were laid upon him. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the worshiper would bring a lamb from his flock to the temple. And he would lay his hands on that lamb and he would confess his sins, the lies, the idolatry, the cheating, the coveting, the adultery, the lust. He would confess his sins, putting, weighing his hands down on the lamb symbolically. And then that lamb would be sacrificed on the altar before God. It was a picture of our, the sins are upon the lamb and the lamb must die. Now go forward to the life of Christ. One of the greatest preachers that ever lived. An ascetic. John the baptizer. Stormed out of the wilderness preaching like Elijah, announcing the Messiah that would come. They hadn't heard a voice like his in, his in Israel since Elijah. He was to announce the Messiah. And one day Jesus walked by. And John the Baptist didn't say, look, there goes Jesus. He didn't say, look, there goes Jesus the Messiah. You know what he said? Look at John 1.29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not take away one sin. All those lambs were symbolic of the Lamb that God would send. And John pointed to Jesus, and the first thing he said was, there is the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb that God will provide. 
This was the lamb of all lambs, the sacrifice of all sacrifices. He was saying that Jesus would be sacrificed as a lamb for our sins. We look at the trial and the death of Jesus, and we cry, injustice. He was innocent. The trial was a mockery. The execution was undeserved. What those men did was injustice. Absolutely. But God used it to bring a greater justice. At Calvary, our sin was laid on Jesus. And God emptied his righteous justice on him. It's a justice like this world has never, ever, ever seen. God emptied his judgment on his own son. Why? Because Jesus had become the transgressor. He had become the idolater. He had become the Sabbath breaker. He had become the the cursor who took the Lord's name in vain. He had become the sinful child who disobeys parents. He had become the liar, the murderer, the thief. He had become the liar that bore false witness against his neighbors. He had become the coveter. And what did God do? Did God say, that's my son, I I can't do that? God, in his holy, infinite justice, poured out his judgment and just judgment on his own son. Only the eternal Son of God could suffer eternal judgment in that moment. No one else could. What's the greatest characteristic that, of God that we see at Calvary? What's the greatest characteristic? We see Jesus dying for our sin. And we would say, we see love. And certainly there is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love. Look, it's on your scripture sheet. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there's something even more profound from the character of God we see at Calvary. Paul writes of another profound characteristic of God that is clearly seen. Look at Romans 3, 25. And if you don't look at anything else today, you look at this. And you stare at these verses, you circle these verses, you underline these verses, you study them, you meditate until you understand the profound depth of these verses. Paul wrote, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his love? No. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed before him unpunished. Beforehand unpunished. 
Verse 26, he repeats it. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We've never seen justice like that. The innocent takes the sin, the crimes of the guilty. And he's the son of the judge. I have two wonderful daughters. And right in between them, I have this gigantic, ugly son. He's here this morning. That's why I'm telling you this. But I would not, I would not give him for the riffraff of this world. I wouldn't do it. And yet God loved his son more than I love mine. Parents, look at your children. This is what God did. When our sins fell on him, He didn't set his justice aside. He exercised this holy, infinite justice. And I've got cold chills just saying that. The holy justice of God demanded the sinner be held accountable for his sin. So you have a suffering servant. And you have a sacrifice and substituted servant. And finally, thirdly, this is the good part. We see a satisfied servant. Very quickly, look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, though he was sacrificed, though he was slain, look at it, he will see his offspring. And prolong his days. I, I thought he died. No. He will see his offspring and his days will be prolonged. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, this judgment is not the end. This death is not the end. Look at verse 11. After, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. He'll come back to life. And what? Mark it down and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, because he does that, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the the spoils of the strong. Look, who divides the spoils of war? The conquering king does. Here the suffering servant becomes this majestic conquering king. Satisfied. After this awful ordeal, the suffering servant will look at his work and look at his accomplishment and he'll be satisfied. During the Second World War, 400,000 men and women to the armed services of the United States were killed. 400,000. 400,000 
of our soldiers did not come home. During that war, we suffered terribly. It was horrible. But look at the pictures that were taken on Armistice Day. Look at the pictures that were taken immediately the day the war ended, in the weeks after the war. There's celebration. There's parties. American soldiers, American civilians hugging each other. And you say, oh, John, they were celebrating that the hostilities had ceased. They were celebrating the actual fighting was over. Yes. But they were celebrating as winners. They were celebrating as victorious. They were celebrating something far better than the war being over. They were celebrating victory over the awful evil of the Third Reich. They were looking at what their fighting and dying had accomplished, and they were satisfied. Well, just so, in the cross and resurrection, this Messiah King, as a suffering servant, won a great victory. And when he looks at the work of redemption, when he looks at what was wrought at Calvary, when he looks at what was wrought in the empty tomb, he is made glad. He has been celebrating that victory for 2,000 years, and he celebrates it with his people here at Christ Presbyterian this morning. When his eyes see you, a rebellious sinner, a rebellious sinner, saved by grace, when he sees you praising him, a sinner, a rebel, he's satisfied with his work. When he sees you stand before God innocent because he took your sin and guilt upon himself, he's satisfied. When he has the redeemed of the earth in his train before God going into glory, he's satisfied. When he hears the Father say to men and women born in sin, when he hears the Father say to us, no one can lay a sin to your charge because my son has died. Jesus is satisfied. One scripture and we're done. Paul writes about this. The satisfaction, the exaltation of the suffering servant in Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 5, 6, and 7, and then I want you to join me. No, Uh, I'm just going to, you're going to read it with me from verse 5. Let's do it that way. I want you to read this with me, and then we're done. Let's read it in unison. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
there is the suffering servant as a majestic king, home in glory, and satisfied. Our hymn is, There is a Fountain.